Well, this is Thanksgiving Sunday, 2011, and I cannot imagine a more important subject to talk about than the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm sure we're thankful to God for many things. We're thankful for family and uh, for our health and, uh, and our lifestyles. When you travel a bit around the world, you see just how blessed in terms of, of the material aspect of life we are in Canada and the freedoms that we enjoy. But as Christians, nothing should fill our minds with more gratitude or our hearts with more praise than the gospel. The fact of the atoning death and the bodily resurrection of Jesus as being the sole basis of our salvation and the sole hope of eternal life. And this message, if it's truly believed, changes us forever. It renews our hearts, it transforms our behavior. And I believe it leads to the most fruitful and satisfying life on earth and fills us with confidence as we face the future. Nothing is a greater cause for genuine rejoicing and ongoing thanksgiving than the life-giving, destiny-altering gospel of Jesus Christ. You know what? A Mediterranean cruise can't hold a candle to the gospel. Mediterranean cruise is wonderful. Been there, done that. But nothing compares to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today we're going to begin a study in Galatians, interrupted by messages from Pastor Dan. <clears throat> Where'd he go? <laughs> uh, and, the go- and its focus on the gospel is, is how this book begins. Here's what John Piper says. Galatians is a virile statement of the central truths of Christianity. If we as people can make these truths and this vigor a part of our thinking and our willing, the bones of our faith will be strong, not brittle. The emotional force of our life in Christ will not be lukewarm, but ardent, intense, and individual. He goes on to say, Galatians exalts two things. The cross of Christ as the only way a person can get right with God, and the spirit of Christ as the only way a person can obey God. So Paul had been used by God to begin the Galatian churches. There were several churches there, at least four that we know of. And so he had proclaimed the same gospel to the Galatian churches that he proclaimed anywhere he went. But something was happening that had shocked and alarmed him. And from the opening verses that Pastor Dan just read, we know that there were false teachers who had infiltrated the congregations proclaiming a false gospel. See, they said that the simple message that the Apostle Paul was teaching, well, it's good as far as it went, but it didn't go far enough. You needed to add the law and the ceremonies to the gospel to make the gospel uh, uh, complete. So this combination of law and gospel shocked the Apostle Paul because it was not his message. He knew that if you mix law and grace, you destroy grace. You're adding man's work to the work of Christ. It's one or the other, but it can't be both. Paul knew that if you tamper with the gospel, 
If you alter it, if you twist it and deform it to make it more appealing, if you add works or rituals to the simple message of salvation, you pervert the gospel and eventually you destroy the church. And I believe our modern world faces the same threats. There are always those who come along who want to change the gospel. In fact, I would go so far as to say this. In most churches, and I'm thinking the broad uh, concept of Christianity, in most churches, the gospel, as we find it in the New Testament, is not, is not being proclaimed. In many Protestant churches of the liberal persuasion, they teach that Jesus is not the only way of salvation. Oh, he's one of the ways, but he's not the only way. And more and more evangelical churches are buying into that false idea. What is this new and improved gospel message that was being taught by the false teachers in Paul's day and is being taught today? Here's what one author says. Conviction of sin has been replaced by seeing the gospel as a means to self-improvement. The gospel's about me. No, it's not. The work of the cross has been uh, denuded of any sense of satisfying God's judicial demands upon lawbreakers. The cross is not about God's judgment upon sin. They reject that. Faith in Christ, which abandons self-dependence, has been exchanged for praying a little prayer that guarantees results. We need only look at the overall condition, character, and spirituality in the church to understand that whatever gospel the multitudes have professed, they do not possess the saving work of Christ. So Paul saw what was happening in the Galatian churches, and he could not be silent. Writer Timothy George states, Galatians is a tornado warning. False gospels today, the sacraments save your soul. No, they don't. If you live a good life, God will accept you. No, he won't. Well, maybe it's my lineage, my background, the fact that I've been raised in the church. That's going to have merit. No, it doesn't. Maybe it's because I belong to a certain denomination. Now, that's going to give me a ticket to heaven. No, it won't. So that's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with the nature of the gospel here. The outline I'm using, as you see in your notes, is from Warren Wearsby. In the first ten verses, Paul explains his authority, he expresses his anxiety, and he exposes his adversaries. And we're just going to look at the first five verses. Now, Paul was an unbeliever during the earthly ministry of Christ, Saul of Tarsus. And so his opponents are saying, Paul, you have no right to speak as an apostle because you're not an apostle. Paul adamantly refutes that notion. He lays claim to have unique authority because he is an apostle. And his calling and commissioning is from God. And so he not only has the right to speak as he does, he has the responsibility to challenge those who are preaching a false gospel. There is one gospel. As we shall see next week, there is no other. 
Today, the word gospel, like the word Christian, is used in ways that bear no resemblance to what is taught in the Bible. Since there are countless false gospels, you and I have to understand what is the true gospel? What is the gospel? We know the word means good news, but what is the good news? So Paul begins by stating his ministry. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. The word apostle can have a really broad meaning and it can have a specific meaning. In its generic sense, the word means one who is sent. One who is sent with a message. And since Christ has called all of us to be missionaries in the context in which he has placed us, we are also sent people. In Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. I want you to recall that phrase because I'm going to deal with authority later. So Jesus is saying all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So we are to go into all the world and preach the gospel. That's the very broad meaning of an apostle, one who is sent. But there is a specific meaning, a narrow meaning, and that's what Paul is talking about here. It refers to the 12, listed in various places. One place is Mark chapter 3, 13 to 19. These 12 men were called apart from their normal normal. Um, way of making a living, their occupations, and they were called to be with Christ 24-7, learning from him, ministering along with him, given sometimes miraculous powers to perform miracles. How then does Paul qualify to be an apostle when he did not come to faith until after Christ had been risen from the dead. Saul of Tarsus was not among those original 12. Well, one of the requirements for an apostle was that he had seen the risen Christ. Uh, Peter mentions this three times in Acts chapter 1, 2, and 3, that we are witnesses of the resurrection, Peter says. Paul qualifies on that basis because on the Damascus road, he saw the risen Christ. In 1 Corinthians 9.1, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen our Lord? And he means seen him. 1 Corinthians 15, he talks about the numbers of people that Jesus had, had uh, revealed himself to and contacted after his resurrection. And then he says that he was one of those. When Paul writes to the Corinthians, who were experiencing all manner of doctrinal and moral problems, here's what he says. For this reason, I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come, you may not, I may not have to be severe in the use of the authority that the Lord has given me. In the use of the authority that the Lord has given me. The authority as an apostle. So what Paul is urging the Corinthians to do, before I come, clean up your act, or else I will deal with you. Now, let me say this clearly. The office of an apostle in the 
narrow New Testament sense does not exist anymore. It was a first century thing and does not exist now. There are no group of men, there are no men who possess that kind of authority, although some today claim they are apostles. No one since the time of Christ has seen the risen Lord. No one who has lived since the end of the New Testament has been given special revelation from God, although the cults all claim they have. No one can perform the kind of miracles performed by the 12 original apostles and by the Apostle Paul. And so we enter into dangerous territory when we start believing that people today have the apostolic gift. What happens is that their, their authority is placed above the authority of the Bible. So boldly and correctly, Paul declares his apostleship. That's not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Well, some may say, okay, Paul was an apostle. Big deal. What does that have to do with me and my life? There are professing Christians who think this way. And I have met some of them. Along the way, in, when, you pastor, when, when you counsel as a pastor, you have people come to you with various issues and behavior and forms of conduct and choices they have made, and they begin to discuss them. And then when you try to point out from Scripture how they're really off course in this area of their life, that they have violated the Word of God, and you show them chapter and verse, they basically say, I'm happy. I can't see how God would condemn what I'm doing because I feel good about what I'm doing and they become defensive and argumentative. And a lot of people, a lot of Christians say the most important thing when it comes to God and me that God wants me happy. And so I'm sure that God understands if maybe I'm violating the Bible but I'm happy. So what they have done is they placed up the emotion of happiness as their God, their self as their God. And sometimes when, as a pastor, you're called upon to challenge them, uh, their response is not pleasant, let me say. Piper says there really isn't a lot of discipline submission to the apostles' word in the contemporary church. We treat the Bible mainly as a kind of spiritual hypo to boost our emotions. But the practice of submitting all our ideas and attitudes and habits day by day to the scrutiny and the absolute authority of the apostles is rare. It may be that you may be having conflict or trouble in your marriage or in your finances. And may I suggest that the probable reason is for me or you is that we're violating clear biblical teaching in these and other areas. Pastor Dan and I seek to set before you each week the actual text of Scripture. We believe in exposition. That's what we do. Dan and Mark, me and Galatians, many other ways to preach. But we have the conviction you open the Bible and you preach the actual text of the Scripture. 
And frankly, we probably, and don't be offended, we probably are not thinking, how can I make the congregation happy? That thought probably doesn't enter our minds too much. Our, prob- our, our thought is, how can I honor the truth of God? And when you honor the truth of God, and people respond, you know what? You're happy <laughs> in the right sort of way. So Paul says that his authority came from God. Let's place our authority in the right place. The right place is not Pastor Dan or I. The right place is not a human teacher. It's the Bible. The right place is not the church. So often you hear a religious leader says, well, the teaching of the church. No, the teaching of the Bible is thus and so. Scripture says, in fact, that any one who claims to be a religious teacher, a Christian teacher, had better be careful. Listen to James 3.1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. That scares the, well, it scares the pants off me. No, it doesn't, but <laughs> I hope not, anyways. It is a frightening concept that will be judged with greater strictness. Those of us who teach scripture, and that applies to Sunday school teachers and the care group leaders and to parents in the home. So we need to take the word of God very seriously. So what happens in this building each Sunday is not a mere human event. It is a God-centered, Christ-honoring event. Now returning back to what Paul is saying here, in addition to the fact that he has his calling and commissioning directly from Jesus Christ, he was also the human instrument in founding the Galatian churches, Iconium, Antioch, Lystra, and Derbe, Acts 13 and 14. So on a mere human level, these people owe their salvation. I'm talking about the human instrument to the Apostle Paul. And he had brought the gospel to them. And he possessed deep affection for them. I want you to read, read something from Galatians chapter 4, verse 12. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you. He's expressing his affection for them and initially their affection for him. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me. So there was something going on in Paul's health that could have been a limiting factor in terms of their response to him, but they still received him and his message. That was back then. So he asked the question, what then has become of the blessing you felt? I mean, what's going on now? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. The assumption is that Paul had a problem with his sight. And that's seen in other places in in his writings. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? He is sensing their hostility to him now. The false teachers not only taught false things, they turned the congregations against the Apostle Paul. They, we're in the false teachers, make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you 
may make much of them. It's always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I'm present with you, my little children, for whom I again, in anguish of childbirth, he's talking about giving birth to the congregation through the gospel, until Christ be formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. You have me, you have me worried, Paul is saying. You have me alarmed. I, I don't know what's going on. Why are you listening to those people who are changing the gospel? His message. We see his message in verses 3 and 4. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. Grace is not something we can demand from God. It's not something we merit by our performance. Grace is divine favor bestowed upon undeserving sinners. And not only the grace of salvation, but every blessing we have, and we in Canada, we have a lot of blessings. All come from the grace of God. When grace is rightly understood, it humbles us. It humbles us. For it is not something that we do out of our own wills or have accomplished because of some merit in us. Peace speaks of what grace applied accomplishes. This is not peace in general. People can feel peaceful, but this is peace from a certain source, peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There's an objective peace, Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have what? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Why do we have peace with God if we are justified? The word means to be declared righteous because we have received the imputed righteousness of Christ and we are no longer under the wrath of God. We are at peace with God. There's a subjective aspect to peace, an inner rest and assurance in our hearts which is produced by the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. Philippians 4.4 4, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. So grace and peace from Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins. Now we're moving to the gospel. In all of his letters, 13 in all, the Apostle Paul never, never changes his message. The gospel centers in the person of Jesus Christ. It centers in the price paid by the person. He died on the cross for our sins. And the cross is mentioned several times in this book. And the purpose of the price paid by the person. What's the purpose of the price paid by the person? To deliver us from this present evil age. Verse 4. That's what Christ prayed in John 17, 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Now, how is this accomplished? How are we kept from evil? Well, we read on in John 17, which is the high priestly prayer of Christ. They are not of the world. He's talking to God the Father about believers. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them, make them holy, in the truth. Your word is truth. And that's why knowing the Bible is so important in your personal life. Satan is called the God of this age who blinds the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of God. 
Jesus said that there is evil in the human heart. The Apostle Paul mentions the deeds of the flesh in Galatians 5. So the Bible gives no support to the notion of the goodness of man. Human thinkers have scratched their heads and tried to go with all kinds of theories. Why do people behave as they behave? Why, in a collective sense, do men do hateful and destructive and mean and violent things? What is the root cause of this? The Bible says it's because they're sinners. (laughs) At the core of our being, apart from Christ, is the fallen, corrupt nature. And the only answer to that root problem is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel rescues us from the power of indwelling sin. When we trust Christ, there's a liberation, there's a rescuing, there's a deliverance which takes place. Colossians 1.13, God has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So liberty in Christ is a great theme in Galatians. The false teachers were teaching, that, were teaching such that they would bring people back to enslavement. And Paul mentions this several times. Why do you want to go backward? Why do you want to go back to the law? You've been delivered from the condemnation of the law. He's not saying the law is wrong. He's saying you can't be saved by the law and you can't obey the law in your own strength. The Judaizers wanted to lead these Christians out of the liberty of grace into the bondage of the law. But we have been liberated in Christ. Don't go back. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, that change does not happen overnight. You and I know that in our lives. We have struggles. We have major struggles with sins. It differs from person to person. And we all fail to fully, completely, totally obey Jesus. We all fail. And we sometimes fail over and over and over again. This is why John says in 1 John, if you say you have not sinned, you're a liar. Well, that's pretty plain, isn't it? (laughs) But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Well, what what is his motive for preaching the gospel? Well, Paul breaks forth in a doxology. We just sang the doxology. In a doxology of praise to God. To whom be glory forever and ever. The gospel is God-centered, not man-centered. It gives grace to man and glory to God. Let me repeat that. The gospel being God-centered, not man-centered, gives grace to man, because we need it, and glory to God. God's glory is the sum of all his perfections. At a personal level, it involves putting God on display in our lives, making God look good by trusting his grace and strength and obeying his word. Next Sunday, Lord willing, we will examine in some detail the very strong and alarming words of the Apostle Paul. He says that if you change the gospel, if you alter the gospel... The ones who do that, let them be anathema. You know what that means? Condemned.
to hell. That's how strong Paul feels about the uniqueness of the gospel. The gospel is not what we think it to be or want it to be. When we tamper with the gospel, we tamper with truth. So I want us to ask ourselves a question this morning. I'm not asking you if you believe in God. We probably all do. I'm not asking if you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and he is. Do you believe the gospel? Have you seen yourself as a sinner, a hopeless, helpless sinner, with no hope apart from the atonement of Jesus Christ? No hope at all. And are you trusting in the work of Christ 100% to get you to heaven? And then are you depending upon the power of the Holy Spirit to deliver you from this present evil age? Philippians 1.27, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Let your manner of life, there's a lifestyle, there's a way of behaving which is consistent with the gospel. There's a way of behaving which is inconsistent with the gospel. How can we know if we're actually doing this? What kind of life is worthy of the gospel? What manner of living agrees with the gospel? A life lived under the the lordship of Christ in obedience to the teachings of the Bible to the power of the Holy Spirit. I don't care what culture is doing. I don't care what other Christians are doing. That's the life which is worthy of the gospel. The great challenge before us, Philippians 2.15, we are to be blameless, innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. It was crooked and twisted in Paul's day. It's crookeder and twisteder. It's more crooked and more twisted in our generation. And among this culture, within the midst of this culture, we shine as lights in the world if we live a life that's worthy of the gospel. May God help us to do this. It all starts at the cross. Surrender, repentance, trusting Jesus at the cross. If you have not done that yet, you can do it right where you are. You can trust in Jesus right where you sit. And then your thanksgiving will not just be for the stuff of this world that we all have, but for the gospel and for the Savior. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your truth. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for those who have faithfully proclaimed the gospel to us in our homes and churches down through the years. And I trust that we are seeking to do the same thing here. Change our lives, Lord. Renew our hearts. Help us to live lives worthy of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.